Welcome to Joe's Pub. My name is Amanda Stern. I'm an author and the curator and host of the Happy Ending Music and Reading series, and I have a migraine, so um, this is painful, um, but uh, you should know that I have a migraine. So in the middle of the show, there might be a gurney coming out to rescue me. Um, I've taken a lot of drugs. Um, If you have any to offer me, I am willing to consider taking it on top of what I've taken. Anyone? (laughs) Anything? Demerol? Does that work? Anyway, um, I'm sure I'll get better and better. I I really have taken a lot of things. Um, But so tonight's theme is uh, strange places, and I had a whole monologue about strange places, but I'm not sure that I can actually do the monologue because I might die. Um, But so um, I'll tell you what the monologue was going to be about. How's that? That's good. You can laugh. It's all right. It's, you know, it hurts anyway. Um, What was the monologue going to be about? Oh, I was going to say how how our authors tonight, who are all amazing, Jessica, Anthony, Amelia Gray, and Heidi Julewitz, um, managed to write about, conjure up really fantastical worlds. And, um, and I was trying to think of other, like, strange places that I've been. And I've, you know, traveled with the Cirque du Soleil in Europe, and, and, and that didn't even seem as strange as where we actually live, we and who we are. We're human beings. We grow people in our bodies. That's so weird. Isn't that? That's bizarre. So I, I think that we actually live in the strangest place of all where your head actually hurts. And you can't see what's causing it to hurt. Anyway, I could go on and on, but I won't because I honestly might pass out. Um, the musical guest... Uh, opens and closes the show, and they play um, four original songs, and then they are required to play the cover song of their choice and attempt to get the entire audience, which would be you, to sing along. So that's what happens. Um, To my right is Michael Arthur. Have you tried to draw a migraine? The musical guest uh, tonight is Kaiser Cartel. I'm not not the only one who had a little um, surprise visitor in the form of a migraine. Um, Courtney um, Kaiser, who is part of Kaiser Cartel, um, went into labor a month early, and um, she won't be here because she had a baby a month early. So it's going to be Ben Cartel and um, his, his friends, Kieran and Jillian. So let me try and read you. Let me try and read out loud. Kaiser Cartel is a low... I'm going to read Kaiser Cartel's bio because that's just what's going to happen. Kaiser Cartel is a lo-fi, song-driven, harmony-heavy, Brooklyn-based duo. They recently followed up their successful debut album, March 4th, with a darker, more experimental collection entitled Secret Transit. Their music has been heard on the TV shows Exiled, Alter Ego, Private Practice, and the first two episodes of Bored to Death, and most recently, The Firm. Their charming and intimate live show is not to be missed, which is a great thing because you're actually all here and won't miss it. It's my great pleasure to give you Benjamin Cartel. Okay. This is a song which is not actually a 
Kaiser Cartel song. It's a Benjamin Cartel song, but uh, but we may still yet record it. It's called Julia, and it goes like this. Would you do if you found someone who wanted to be with you every night and day? Would you like it? Yeah. Would you? If I found a way to see golden rays when it's cloudy, yeah, would you like it? Yeah, would you? first author of the night is Amelia Gray. Um, she grew up in Tucson, Arizona. She's the author of two previous books, both acclaimed by critics, AMPM and Museum of the Weird, which was awarded the Ronald mm, Zukanik All right. American Book Review Innovative Fiction Prize. Gray has built up a su- substantial public following by financing her tour for AMPM through Kickstarter, renting a van, and traveling around the country to read in bars and indie bookstores. That's cool. She lives in Los Angeles. Threats is her first novel, and it's my great pleasure to give you Amelia Gray. The woman and man are on a date. It is a date! The woman rubs a lipstick print off her water glass. 
The man turns his butter knife over and over and over and over and over and over. Everyone has to pee. What's the deal with dates? The man excuses himself to go pee. At the table, the woman scratches her forearm a little too hard, and a slice of skin peels up with her fingernail. She tries to smooth it back, but it doesn't go, even when she presses her palm to it. It curls around itself like a pencil shaving. The woman is dismayed. She holds her hand her hands on her lap when the man returns from the bathroom. The man pulls back his chair and sits heavily. When the woman sees him, she covers her mouth to stop her laughter. The man must have washed his face too hard in the sink because his left eye and cheekbone are stretching apart. Bits of paper towel stick to his cheek. He has wiped off his face. He observes her mirth with a skewed, sullen glare until she shows him the skin of her forearm. Then he laughs with her. He uses his butter knife to scrape up a portion of his own skin to match hers. She plucks at her cheekbone until it forms a sharp point. He twists his thumb around. It pops into his palm and he overhands it into the kitchen. The woman bares her breasts and flicks her nipples off her body like flies on a summer day. They land on the floor and the waiter catches one under his heel and slips across the tile. The other patrons have been watching this central pair. Underneath the couple's skin, a clear paneling emerges, a carapace, a subcutaneous shell. Their bodies are mannequins holding skin and clothing in color. Here's the deal, y'all. There is a layer of skin. Do you see what I'm saying? And then underneath that, you can't get in there. A wild look enters all eyes. Individuals wipe flesh off one another with napkins soaked in wine. A mother gnaws her child in its booster seat. One man lifts his ruddy toupee to reveal a few pathetic strands of glue-coated hair hair, blonde in color, which he swipes off in one motion and stuffs down his shirt front. A woman, watching the man, flicks open his button fly and the hair scatters like dandelion feathers. The man howls and the woman rips his dick off and drops it into a bowl of soup. What's the deal with soup? Tablecloths are pulled from tables and the tables themselves are scrubbed of their color. A waiter dumps a tray of meat on the floor, shines a tray on his ass and wears it as a breastplate to go into battle with the cook, a stout man with a blistered face. The cook wipes himself clean to reveal a featureless figure dripping with rage and shame. He tips a boiling pot of pasta water onto the waiter, who himself is freed from ears, hair, dermis, and his white waiter's gloves, which he had once bleached every night and which now gunk up the kitchen drain, along with the drippings from a holiday ham and a full set of teeth. The room contracts. A woman screams until a child slips a dessert spoon under a muscle in her neck and flings her larynx to the floor, at which point the woman grasps both breasts, rips them from her body, and applies them to her throat. The breasts produce a twin howling wail, which consume a grown man whole. Flesh is siphoned into a bowl and poured without discrimination into a freestanding grandfather clock, which is set on fire and rolled into the street. This is no sepsis, no sucker heart, no blind agony. There rises a rallying cry of mutual recognition. This is a celebration. Each piece of internal armor on each individual is so thick with shine that even light from the recent past and future finds a way to burst forth, shattering across, shattering glass, covering all in a blinding, healing, bleeding, screaming light. Because that's what life is, you assholes. That's what it means to be alive. (laughs) Jessica Anthony is the author of The Convalescent and Chopsticks, a multimedia collaboration with the creative director at Farrar, Strauss, and Giroux, Rodrigo Corral. Her short fiction can be found in Best New American Voices, Best American Non-Required Reading, McSweeney's, and elsewhere. She is currently writing her third novel, Enter the Aardvark, and lives in Portland, Maine. And it's my great pleasure to give you Jessica Anthony.
I am 100% healthy. Uh, I'm going to be reading um, tonight from The Convalescent, my first novel, which concerns a short, um, sickly Hungarian near midget who sells meat out of a bus in northern Virginia. And the 10,000 years of Hungarian history, which attempt to define him. On June 15, 1985, at 3.42 p.m., a 6.7 magnitude earthquake hit Puebla, Mexico, destroying 290 churches, 300 schools, and 4,000 houses, leaving 14 people dead and over 15,000 homeless. Among the living was a young girl named Adelpha Salas Santino who, after digging through rubble at the old Vehiculos Automotoros Mexicanos factory to find both of her parents suffocated, picked up a dusty knife, held it to her middle, and then stabbed herself quick in the stomach. She was rushed to the emergency room by paramedics who, when they could find no identification, asked the girl, Como te amas? To which Adelpha Salas Santino replied, Mariposa, which means butterfly. At the exact same moment, a team of astronomers at L'Observatoire de Paris witnessed the birth of a star ten times the size of our sun. The star was located in the center of a nebula, formerly obscured by dust and gases, but when winds produced by the newborn star cleared the debris, its unusual shape could be seen for the first time. At 3.42 p.m., one of the astronomers excitedly observed that the nebula possessed two round adjoining clouds instead of the regular single cloud and named it Papillon, which is French for butterfly. Back on Earth, a thousand miles north of Mexico, Miss Mary Pierce, a single middle-aged woman with an acute case of agoraphobia, was standing at the front door of her two-bedroom ranch home in a suburb of Youngstown, Ohio, wringing her hands to keep them from shaking. She was trying to summon the courage to open the door and go outside when the mail slot flew open and through it, the mailman shoved a promotional copy of Explore Other Galaxies magazine. At 3.42 p.m., trembling, Miss Pierce opened the magazine. A brown butterfly spun out from underneath the pages. Specifically, the butterfly was an Adelpha salis, which is known only to remote regions of Mexico. Lepidopterists call it Lost Sister. Also, on this day in history, on June 15, 1985, at 3.42 p.m., my parents, Janosch and Janka Fliegman, drove their car into a telephone pole on Backlick Road in Frontlick, Virginia, dying on impact. They didn't own the car. The car they owned was a 1963 Rambler American station wagon assembled at the Vehiculos Automotoros Mexicanos factory in Pueblo, Mexico. The Rambler had given them transmission trouble, and they'd left it abandoned by the side of Backlick Road. The car they were driving was a shiny red Ford Mustang that belonged to a nearby rental agency called Galaxy Car Rentals, which had opened its doors on the cool morning of April 8, 1973, the day that I, Rovar Akosh Fliegman, was born. I have no life. I have no known relatives, no known friends, no church, no office, no warm and embracing community, no formal education. Other people who have lives seem to live their lives pretty well, achieving, aspiring, whatnot. 
Other people are always busy doing big and important things like running for president or voting for president or thinking about running or voting for president. I sell meat out of a bus. Thank you. What happens now? Oh, we move on. Um, my migraine's a little bit better, I think. Sweating is still happening. I'm still trembling. I told you I was going to communicate, right? Communicate with you about my bodily... Yeah. So don't look so alarmed. She's like, why is she telling me that? Sweating, trembling. That's it. Faint. But that I can ride through that. Um, the final author of the night um, I met in... I, no, I met you before that. I met you in the 90s at Breadloaf. And then I met you again. That's a better story, though, Barcelona. When I was traveling with the Cirque du Soleil, I'm going to tell this story a little bit. Heidi was like, I'm going to be in Barcelona. Are you there? Or maybe, yeah, something like that. And I said, yes, I am here. So we made a plan to go, and I would hear her read, and then we were going to go get a drink or a bite to eat. And when I got to her reading, she said to me, it's... I'm, I." can we bring the other, like, panelists with us? Because I feel weird just you and I, that's, like, a little rude. And I, and I looked at the panelists' um, names, David Sedaris, Michael Chabon, Jonathan Lethem, Chuck Palahniuk. And I was like, I don't see why not. So um, I, there might have been others, too, like Jesus Christ. There was, like... It was, it was Mary Magdalene. I mean, it was like nonstop. But the weirdest thing about that whole week was that that I sold my book that week. Were you there for that? Yeah, you might have been. Um, so that was kind of cool. It was like they were all like my good luck charm. Um, and uh, that was kind of amazing. Anyway, so um, Heidi Julevitz is the author of two previous novels, The Mineral Palace and The Effect of Living Backwards, as well as a collaborative book, Hotel Andromeda, with the artist Jenny Gage. She's the founding editor of The Believer, and her writings have appeared in Esquire, Time, The New York Times, McSweeney's, among other places. The Vanishers, her newest novel, is an imaginative and dark novel in which a young woman with psychic abilities must seek out a missing person while attempting to overcome the scars of her own mother's suicide. Not me. Karen Russell calls it one of the best novels I've ever read. She lives in Manhattan and Maine. Please give a warm welcome to Heidi Julevitz. Yeah, the connections are crazy here. Maine, migraines, Barcelona. I had a cold once. Um, right now my only real problem is that I have to pee really badly, so that means I'll probably read pretty short. Um, so, uh, it's really an honor to read with these other two, um, humans, I'll call them. Um, and, uh, yeah, so I'm actually going to read this whole, um, the next 10 or 15 minutes will just be pure shame and risk for me. Um, so I'm going to read, do any of you guys watch The Bachelor? The Bachelorette. Okay, all right, so maybe this won't be as embarrassing as I think it's going to be, or I'm just going to be outing all of us in some way. Okay, so this is basically fan fiction, Um, and this is about season seven of The Bachelorette, which was when Ashley 
H was the bachelorette, and um, she was from Maine. She was from Maine, which maybe explains my attachment to her. Anyways, there was this really great dude on her season, and um, his name was Ryan P., because, you know, frequently, for some reason, these people, there's multi- multiples of them. There's, like, a couple Ashleys, a couple Chantals, a couple Ryans. So, in this case, there are a couple Ryans. So, Ryan P., though, was this kind of dark horse, which is really the wrong way to describe him, because he was so smiley and sunny and optimistic. Anyways, he got kicked off, and he just wouldn't go away. He just kept kind of coming back, which was sort of unorthodox, but awesome. And so, um, anyway, so I got really inspired by Ryan P. And so this is, this is his story. Um, okay. When Ashley told me to go home, I went. Well, not immediately. First, I walked to a garden and sat on a bench, or I think it was a garden, but there's a chance it was a cemetery and I was crying on a grave. Who knows? I was not in my home country. Love had led me, Ryan P., astray. Love had led me to Taiwan, love had led me to China. Love has led me to China, I tweeted and maybe even said, but maybe love didn't. So I cried when Ashley broke up with me, something I wouldn't normally do after non-exclusively dating a girl for just a few weeks on TV. (laughs) Except that there were the usual camera people following me around and I knew it would make them happy if I cried and I wanted to make them happy. We, as in we guys who were starting to fall in love with Ashley... We called these camera people the ones that always gave a shit, because they always gave a shit. Even while swimming with great whites while we drank mimosas with Ashley in partially submerged steel cages, they still gave a shit. Though they pestered us constantly to badmouth each other, to admit, for example, that we thought the other Ryan, Ryan S., was secretly gay, or that Blake was a hilarious dumbass because he always said, karma's a bitch, after he'd done something worthy of a karma smackdown. We guys mostly liked the ones, and no surprise there. Many of us came, many of us guys came from homes where the shit-giving had been of that other variety. We guys told Ashley differently, of course. We guys told Ashley that our families loved us and we loved our families, that our families were our spiritual protein shakes, that our notion of an ideal Sunday was to cook turkey chili with them and toss a pigskin on the lawn in Tommy Hilfiger sweaters and love tackle each other in the red leaf piles. Even those of us guys who grew up in Miami with wheelchair-bound Dominican parents told her this. I told Ashley this, too. It didn't happen, but it could have, which seemed a version of not totally lying. I came from a home where the energy was too low for much hating or divorcing, or conversely, chili-making and ball-throwing, but conversely, we did sit on couches on Sundays and most most other days and watch the plasma and never talk, but conversely, never did we call each other cunt sacks. Truth, see... No real love but the total possibility for it. Though my mom did say to me once, and not even because she had cancer, you are my son. I am. I am everyone's son. Some people in my family, my father, for example, because he has cancer of the personality, hate the son. (laughs) What can I do with these people except beam them with my special optimism and say to them, just as I say to the potential accounts at my solar energy firm, without the sun, you die. 
So in the Chinese garden or wherever, I cried and I told the ones, which was true, that I'd been 110% open to falling in love with Ashley. She was so smart. She was supposedly a dentist, and I totally believed this about her because she was always sucking with her tongue at her teeth, self-cleaning them or something. This is why I'd embarked on this journey, I told the ones, to meet the woman of my dreams. Plus, what we'd had was so real, I recalled. I told the ones to meet the woman of my dream. Oh, wait, I told the ones. Wait, blah, blah, blah. Oh, yeah, plus, what we'd had was so real, I recalled. When we were on our date on top of a half-finished skyscraper, which we'd summited with the help of a team of urban mountaineers, I'd said, this feels so real. And Ashley had totally agreed. That's, by the way, the name of the story. It's called This Feels So Real. Anyways, um, then as we fed each other fondue, I'd informed her that I'd let my walls down and was ready to fall in love. And sure, maybe my walls coming down wasn't as dramatic as the other walls that had come down on her other dates with the other guys because I didn't have a dead dad who'd made me put up those walls, just a permadict dad who didn't count as much. But all these other guys with their dead dads and their walls, it was frankly kind of ridiculous. It was like each, dad's guy was, each guy's dad was a carpenter, and before he died, he'd said to his son, quick, son, build yourself some walls. And they'd picked up their tools, and they built a shoddy box out of poisoned Chinese drywall that, big surprise, made them really sick. I had walls too, but made of sustainably grown bamboo. And my walls had come down, not because they'd crumbled and released an unhealthy amount of sulfuric acid into the atmosphere, but because I'd fucking blown them up using a respectful green explosive. And when the non-toxic fume had cleared and I could see the blue sky above me and the runway before me, I'd been excited to take this journey with Ashley. I could honestly say, flaws aside, like the teeth sucking and the fact that her water heater, while she was in China, was currently consuming hundreds of pointless kilowatt hours in Philadelphia, that she was the kind of woman I could see spending my life with. She'd told the ones, one of the ones later told me, that she could see that about me, too. And then she stopped seeing that about me, I guess. After I finished crying, I said to, one, to the ones of our breakup, whoa, I was not expecting that. Though what I was not expecting, I can't exactly say. I wasn't expecting to have to board a plane basically immediately and fly with a teen mongoloid tour group and coach totally alone, totally without the guys and the carpenter ghosts of their dead fathers, and sprout a giant bunion on my carbon footprint on top of it all. I wasn't expecting to return to my job at Sun Solar and Sons and a life so real it verged on totally unreal, a life where I was not Ryan P., but just Ryan, because I wasn't part of anything bigger than myself, something bigger that was also, if this makes sense, very small and kind of redundant, comfortably small and redundant. On my journey with Ashley, I knew my enemies, I knew my friends, I knew which Ryan I wasn't, and I, knew, and I knew I wanted love. Sometimes these four things tried to cancel each other out, which got confusing, but mostly it was not at all confusing. Now it was confusing again. Again, I was in competition with, a faceless, millions, with faceless millions of men out there for the faceless millions of women, most of whom did not have an army of stylists on hand to make them look beautiful, even when they were feeling gross and sad. I was not expecting my chest hair 
when I stopped waxing it to grow in so soft. <laughs> and maybe it was this, the soft chest hair that I enjoyed blowing with my hair dryer after I'd finished with my head and watching in the mirror as it rippled and flattened like the pelt of a chick. <laughs> exactly like the pelt of a chick, actually. I'd once found a chick in a rainstorm and rescued it and blow-dried it, a story I'd meant to tell Ashley once we'd gotten to know each other a little better, and she was ready to hear what the ones called my sniper shot, the story that would core the heart from my remaining competitors, all of whom I loved, by the way, like brothers. But Ashley had never been ready to hear about the chick. Every time I tried to get her alone and tell her about the chick, she got a scared look on her face, like I'd had too much champagne and was going to vomit in her lap. And then she blamed me on our final date in China for being too positive. She told me to take it down a notch energy-wise because she preferred a half-calf guy, a guy she could just hang out with and be herself with. And I'd said, smiling, sorry, Ashley, but I'm a fully caffeinated joy latte. A comment she later told the ones proved that I wasn't being real with her, but it wasn't totally my fault because I was not a real person. She said it was sort of like expecting a blind guy to describe a sunset. It just wasn't fair to do that. Okay. Okay, so um, we are going to um, finish the show with some more songs from Kaiser Cartel, better known as Ben Cartel for these purposes. Um, so I hope that they are around. Um, Please give a warm welcome for the return of Kaiser Cartel. Anyway, song's called Favorite Song. day on the subway in my ear along the way the headphones play I can hear you you're my favorite song I want to sing it again you're my favorite song sing it to you yeah Stuck in my head, replaying again I don't mind Stuck in my heart, finished to start It's alright, cause you Are my favorite song I wanna sing it again You're my favorite song Sing it to you, yeah into it, into it, with you, yeah, I'm into it, into it, into it, yes, I am. You are my favorite song, I want to 
sing it again You're my favorite song I want to sing it again You're my favorite song I want to sing it again You're my favorite song Sing it to you, yeah